All right. What I would like to do is prepare us for next week. But I, I'm going to give you an assignment. I would like you to read chapter 1. Here's what I, I, you don't have to write this down, but just, just think about it. If you were to list three character traits of Daniel, what words would you use? Because chapter 1, I mean, it, it's historical. It gives us historical details and stuff, and we'll examine all that next week. But I believe that one of the many reasons the book is introduced this way is it introduces, to the, introduces us to this man, Daniel. And it helps us to understand here is a man of sterling character. So I'm just, as you read, just read the chapter. It's not hard chapter. It's a narrative. It's very easy to understand what's going on in, in the narrative. But as you read and just reflect on it, if I were to list two or three character traits of Daniel, what would you list? So I'd, I'd like you to think about that. So in preparing you for that, because you're going to see at the very beginning of the verse, verse 1 of chapter 1, you're going to see an historical date. You're going to see a name. You're going to you're going to be introduced to a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. So let me, let me give you the background for this, so that hopefully when you do read the assignment, and an assignment has the understanding that you're going to do it, but there's no way I can hold you accountable if you don't do it. But remember, God knows you didn't do it. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want you to feel that. But it, it would really it'd be great if you could do that. If you were to list three character traits of Daniel... What words would you use? Because chapter 1, I mean, it, it's historical. It gives us historical details and stuff, and we'll examine all that next week. But I believe that one of the many reasons the book is introduced this way is it introduces, to the, introduces us to this man, Daniel. And it helps us to understand here is a man of sterling character. So I'm just, as you read, just read the chapter. It's not hard chapter. It's a narrative. It's very easy to understand what's going on in, in the narrative. But as you read and just reflect on it, if I were to list two or three character traits of Daniel, what would you list? So I'd, I'd like you to think about that. So in preparing you for that, because you're going to see at the very beginning of the verse, verse 1 of chapter 1, you're going to see an historical date. You're going to see a name. You're going to you're going to be introduced to a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. So let me, let me give you the background for this, so that hopefully when you do read the assignment, and an assignment has the understanding that you're going to do it, but there's no way I can hold you accountable if you don't do it. But remember, God knows you didn't do it. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want you to feel that. But it, it would really it'd be great if you could do that. Okay, now let me... Um, let me do a couple of things by way of introduction. Daniel is the first, Daniel is part of the first wave of exiles that Nebuchadnezzar takes to Babylon. There are three waves. He's the first one in 605 BC. Now what is going on here? When I say that, the first, what does that mean? The kingdom, when, when, when Solomon died about 960 BC, his kingdom split into two parts. The northern kingdom of ten tribes and the southern kingdom of two. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. It's gone. 
All that remained was the southern kingdom. Now the southern kingdom, Judah, is where Jerusalem was. It's where the capital was. It's where the temple was. It's where the high priests functioned. It was both the political and the religious capital of the Jewish people. God said to them, if you walk in obedience with me, I will bless you in the land. But if you mix worship of me with idolatry, I will send you into exile. And in Jeremiah 24, God said very clearly, you will be in exile for 70 years, and then I will bring you back. The book of Jeremiah tells us, and is actually the last half of the book, is, is Nebuchadnezzar, it's an account of Nebuchadnezzar's armies invading Judah. And it speaks of the armies coming on the north side of Jerusalem, breaking down the wall, coming into the, into the city, and destroying and burning the temple. Daniel was captured and taken back to Babylon. He was the first wave. There's another, at 605, there's another wave in 597. There's a final wave in 586. He's that first part. What's going on here? One of the policies of Nebuchadnezzar was to take the best and the brightest young men of every kingdom he conquered and bring them into his court and teach them the history of Babylon, teach them the language of Babylon, teaching the laws so that they would serve in his court. That's what Daniel's doing there. Daniel's one of those guys. He's bright, he's young, he's sharp, and he is going to be challenged to do everything Nebuchadnezzar wants him to do, including eating non-kosher food and drinking non-kosher wine. And so Daniel's going to have to decide what he's going to do. And there are going to be three guys that are also mentioned there, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three other best and brightest guys. They're all part of that. What are they going to do with this? Are they going to be willing to compromise their principles to serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar? The other aspect about this period of time is Babylonia. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. Babylonia is the superpower of the ancient world. They have no rivals. Even Egypt, which, as you know, is kind of south-southwest of Israel, even Egypt does not measure up. As a matter of fact, for a period of time, Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer part of Egypt. So he is the undisputed leader of the world. He is the head of the superpower of the ancient world. He has no rivals. And one of the things we're going to study in the first five chapters of the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar's growing challenge to respond to the God of Daniel. And one of the questions we'll ask when we get through those introductory chapters is, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? It's really an intriguing issue because of what happens to that man. So there are, there are two things going on in these early chapters of Daniel. There's the focus on Daniel the man of sterling integrity who will not compromise and yet, because of that, he will be elevated to the position of tremendous power in this king. 
The other th- kingdom, the other thing that's going on is what's happening in the life of this man, Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the themes of the book of Daniel is God is the absolute sovereign of history. And it's from that perspective, just alone, it's a great book to study. But out of this is going to come, out of this meaning, the study of the book of Daniel, is going to come kind of a framework that is created as, as Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and then eventually has to interpret his own dreams of what God is doing. What's God's plan? And that's what Daniel, Daniel gives us the framework of God's plan. So it's, a, it's just a fabulous book to study. The other thing about the book is the focus of the first seven chapters is on the Gentiles. What what God's plan for the Gentiles and non-Jews. And then chapter 8 through 12, the focus is on the Jews. And what you see is God has a plan for the Gentile nations, but God also has a plan for the Jews. And that's what Daniel, Daniel's frustrated by that, because Daniel can't quite get this. It's not till the end that he is able to put all this together. So it's just, um, it's a wonderful book to study. So I hope it'll be a fun book for you, an informative book, but a challenging book. So we're going to be kind of tracking those two themes together as we go through the study, especially those first chapters. All right? Do you have any questions about that historical background? Uh, it's 10 of, I believe we'll begin. Did you do your homework? Yes. yes. Okay, two people said yes. There's a few holding back. So. Yes. Now, um, and I, I mean, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I really don't. But I did ask you to just take a look at Chapter 1, which has a lot of historical background. It's very important material. But it, the, the really crucial part of Chapter 1 is introducing us to the man Daniel and his character. He's a man of sterling character. So I'd ask you to read it and... Think of two or three character traits that you would maybe use to describe Daniel from this chapter. What are some of them? You don't even have to just you know, blurt them out or just integrity. All right. I certainly would say here's a man of integrity. Godly. Certainly. Set in his ways. <laughs> I'm sorry. Say it again, please. Set in his ways. Set in his ways. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that's what we stated positively. If somebody says, but I think I know what you mean. Uh, what's another way of saying that? Set in his ways. I mean, Set firm things. convictions. Yeah. Th- let's let's do it that way. He's someone who has firm convictions. I mean, when you know somebody's set in their ways, that means they're inflexible, not willing to bend. And, and I kind of think, generally speaking, that's not always positive, but good. Okay. Good. I would, say, I would say he was winsome, nice, easy to be around. Okay, that's two things. Wise winsome. and easy to be around. You're actually no, like winsome. Ah. Yeah. All right. Um, let's just put it a man of wisdom. Good. Yeah. That's good. Any, any others that you might have noticed? Strong faith. Yeah, a man of uh, a man of faith. These two go together, but I think it's still, 
I like that firm convictions idea, man of faith. Anybody notice anything else? That, and this is this is good. This is probably you really nailed it here. Yeah. Can you also say a man after God's heart? I know David was. Yeah. But I would say yeah. Daniel too, though. Well, sure. Um, that would that would again maybe fit this one, this one, this one. So yeah. Well, that's good. Good negotiator. The what? A good negotiator. A good negotiator. <laughs> All right. Um, Let's, let's, let's put it this way. I'm going to, obviously, this isn't an Old Testament way of putting it. But it is a positive character trait, which is maybe part of what Ed is getting at here. Good interpersonal relationship skills. Again, you know, nobody. I'm not sure in Babylonian, the court, anybody ever put it that way, but from our perspective, that would certainly be true. I mean, he really, um, he really knew how to respond to whether it's Aspenaz, the, the head of the training program for Nebuchadnezzar, or uh, the others in the court, or even Shai. He just knew how to use those skills, how to respond wisely, carefully. He's an amazing man. He, he really is. So, good. Thank you. That's really good. I'll have an assignment for Chapter 2 for you here in a minute. But uh, I want to remind you, I can't remember if you were all here last week or not. But if... if I didn't want to get fired. I'm sorry I'm late. <laughs> you didn't want to get fired by me? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would never fire you, Woody. No, but you men by your boss over across the street. But I'm hoping you did this. You were able to download the notes. Would you take a note a minute, just to look at the notes here with uh, the first page. Let me just highlight a couple of those introductory issues real quickly. Okay? So that uh, as we start Chapter 1... And it talks about the third year of King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, King of... Just so you know what's going on there. Number one, the author's Daniel, who was taken into captivity to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. Now, that's an important year for you. To, I mean, not that you memorize years in history and so on, but it's an important year to always have as your anchor because the book keeps referring to that year. It doesn't say in 605, but it'll tell you in the third year of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem. What year is that? It's 605 B.C. Um, that's the first wave. Nebuchadnezzar will take three waves of the best and brightest to Babylon. First wave is here, 605. In 597, he attacks Jerusalem again and takes another wave. That's when Ezekiel is taken. You know, Ezekiel, that, that's a hard book in the Old Testament, but it's an important one. Ezekiel is taken in that wave. And then the last one is in 586. That, and again, that's in your notes, but that's when Jerusalem is totally destroyed. Temple's destroyed, and basically Judah's a wasteland, and will be that way for, 30, uh, for uh, almost 70 years. Now, I want to make sure, because this is also important in understanding what's going on in chapter uh, 1. Nebuchadnezzar, he was a shrewd king. Many would say he was a good king. He was a wise king. I'm not approving of everything he did, but I meant in terms of how to rule. 
He took the best and brightest from every kingdom he conquered and put them into the court school to train them in the history, the language, so that they would serve the empire. Now think about that for a minute. That's, that's wise. That's shrewd. You're being the best and brightest of people of Judah, the people of Syria, the people of the Philistines, the people of the Moabites. You see what I mean? So that you're getting the best and the brightest to be linked to your conqueror. So that loyalty is developed to your conqueror. That's, that's wise actions. Again, I'm not approving of it. I'm just... So Daniel, Daniel is one of those that was chosen. Why was he chosen? We all know. Legend or tradition, I should say, is a better word. Tradition has, and it, it is not able to be proved from the scriptures, but that Daniel was part of an aristocratic family in Judah. So all that would mean is perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's henchmen, they come into a territory, they, who are the best and brightest in this community? Well, Daniel, he's the son of such and such. He's a shrewd guy. He's a smart young man. He's one of those guys, and so maybe they gave him an SAT test, did, you know, a Myers-Briggs, and, okay, he's gone to Babylon. So we don't know. I'm making that up. But, so that he's chosen is part of Nebuchadnezzar's policies. Jim, wasn't he taken from his family? He was. Mm-hmm. About 15 yes. years he, old that, or something? Probably around that. Mm-hmm. Probably around that. Continuing, just in number one, he was trained for the king's service, then served Nebuchadnezzar, and after the Persians conquered Babylonia, which we will read about in chapter six, or chapter five, excuse me, he served in the Persian court. He wrote this book between 560 and 530 BC. And then I mentioned that tradition has he was born of nobility. Number two, the purpose of this book is clear to give prophetic instruction about God's program for history. Now, honestly, man, that is a very important sentence. That gives structure and meaning to the book of Daniel. It's God's program for history affecting both his people, Israel, and the other great world kingdoms. Furthermore, when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians leveled the temple of Jerusalem, they mocked Yahweh, declaring that their gods and some of their gods were Asher, Baal, Nebo, were greater than the Jewish god which I was very typical in the ancient world. My God's greater than your God because I conquered you. So my God's greater. So that's why Nebuchadnezzar took all of the implements, all of the worship items, all of the ritualistic items to Babylon. Where did he put them? In the temple of Marduk, his chief God, because my God's greater than your God. How do I know that? Because I conquered you. Well, this book that we're about to study displays the power and superiority of God compared to the false god to Babylon. So the validity of ethical monotheism is restored, that there is only one true God. He will be referred in this book as Daniel's God. And one of the really important questions is, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Because as we go through this, Nebuchadnezzar is introduced chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the statue, which is a vision or dream he has. In chapter 3, he sets up an image to be worshipped by himself, uh, of himself by, to be worshipped by everybody in the kingdom. And then God rescues supernaturally the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
in the fiery furnace. Then chapter 4 is that uh, very important chapter that I think all of uh, uh, you are pretty familiar with. When Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree, God struck him with mental illness. And for seven years, he was living like an animal. And at the end of that decree, Daniel, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar affirms that true God is Daniel's God, which raises a question, or at least he Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. We'll get to that in chapter 4. And in chapter 5 is the destruction of the Babylonian Empire by the Persians. But it's that, that, think how important that is. You're a Jew. You've been taken into exile, and you're reading this book. God said he would put us in exile. We did not follow him. If we didn't mix worship of him with all these other gods, we mixed worship of him with all these other gods. So he sent us into exile. But he told us, you're going to be there for 70 years. And Jeremiah, in his wonderful book, is was written to the people at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion, says, okay, you're going to go to Babylon. Settle down. Have children. Build your houses in Babylonia. Because you're going to be there for seven years, 70 years. That's God's will for you. It's judgment for your disobedience to him. But he will bring you back. So to read this, to read this book, it's affirming our God is the only true God. And he is going to bring, he, God, is going to bring Nebuchadnezzar down. And I, these are amazing truths. And as I was talking at the beginning, I can't remember how many of you were here, but one of the, the wonderful byproducts of studying the book of Daniel is a deeper conviction of the sovereignty of God. He really has everything under control. And again, for you and me today, in 2015, when things are kind of coming apart, they're certainly coming apart on a lot of different levels, but worldwide again, things are really unstable. They're unstable in Asia, they're unstable in the Middle East. What's Russia doing? I mean, all of those things which seem to be, they no longer are, let alone what's happening internally in our country. So this book can be of great value to me, to you and me. Then finally, number four, because I told you the first half of the book is written in Aramaic, second half of the book is written in Hebrew. I want you to just make sure you get the historical setting. Daniel was written during one of the great and historic superpower shifts in the ancient world. Assyria had passed from the scene, conquered by Babylonia under Nabopolassar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's father. But Persia, united with the Medes from the east, conquered Babylonia in 539 and became the superpower of the ancient world, rivaled only by Egypt. Persia's empire would stretch from India, Hindu Kush mountains, all the way over to Egypt. It's a massive, massive empire. And in the middle of this were the Jews, small, seemingly insignificant, but they are representing the message of the true God. And at the forefront of this is this one man, Daniel. And so that's kind of the historic setting of this. It is, it is one of the most remarkable periods in human history. I mean, it really is. And a lot of things are churning and happening. But in the middle of this is God's people, the center of what he's doing on planet Earth, and his faithfulness to them and how this affects everything else in history. All right? So that's kind of an overview. Are you with me? Yeah, Fred. Um, can you do a parallel since our... Um your comments, and, and I think a lot of us believe that we are in a great time of transition, not only domestically at U.S., but internationally, worldwide. 
uh, how we as Christians can parallel this um, uh, this walk of, of Daniel and the effectiveness that that might have uh, in caring for others and where they will spend eternity and just in, in general. Yes, uh, there's a lot in your question. We are, in 2015, we are in a period that's very unsettling because all of the orders and structures that followed World War I and World War II are coming apart. The Middle East, which was put together after World War I, reaffirmed World War II, is coming apart. I mean, all, all of the structures and everything about that, all the maps, Syria doesn't exist anymore, Iraq doesn't exist anymore, and it's unsettling. Um, the order that was put together in Europe after World War II is coming apart. The Asian situation is totally being upended because of China. Now, not, not all these things are negative, but it, and it's hard. You have these three huge power shifts, and nobody exactly knows what's going on. And everything's catching the CIA and everybody. It's catching them off guard because nobody is predicting these things. And uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole new economic order being put together um, for a lot of a lot of reasons, a lot of things that are going on, and then morally um, and ethically in, in Western civilization, it's very much being upended. There's no question about that. And I think, Fred, one of the things that this book will drive us to, as well as just our own faith, is we have to keep our focus on eternity. Because it is the, all of these things are going to pass away. I'm teaching in another class, I'm teaching Second Peter, and we're in the last chapter, it was chapter 3 of Second Peter. That's what Peter is saying there. Everything that you hold dear is going to be destroyed. Because God's going to remake his world. He's going to recreate his world. It's called the new heaven and new earth. So don't hang on to these things tightly. Because they're going to all go. So keep your focus on that which is eternally important. And what is eternally important, Fred, are people. There are only two things that are going to live forever. God's word and people. This desk, this, this isn't a desk, this is a table. This is a big table. This table is not going to be here in eternity. But you will be. Amen. And you're either going to be in eternity with God because you put your faith in his son, or you will not be in it that relationship with him. You will be in a place of judgment. There is no other, there's no in-between, there's no other choice. So from, from the perspective of the scriptures now, people are really important to God. And if people are really important to God, they should be important to us. Which means we just seek to represent him and be available to him as he wants to use us to help people see that what is really, really, really important about life is found in Christ. I just read a, a definition of contentment. I loved it, so I hope I can remember it. Contentment is being grateful for what you have, satisfied with what you earn, generous in what you give. Isn't that good? That's contentment. Could you repeat that again? I hope I can remember it. It's, uh, Sw Swindoll uh, is the one that I read. He wrote it. Uh, Contentment is being uh, grateful for what you have, satisfied with what you make, generous in what you give. That's contentment. And that is, that's a very God-focused, eternal-focused way of looking at things.
That doesn't mean ambition isn't important. It doesn't mean having goals. That's not what it means. But it's being grateful for what you have. Grateful for everything that God's given you. And we can do that. Absolutely. We can do that. I think Absolutely. sometimes we think we can't because we have to be so holy. Yeah. Or we just... Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All right, let's start the book of Daniel. Chapter 1. We did the homework, Woody. You missed it. There's the homework. <clears throat> because we're people who uh, like being prompt and being on time. And being <clears throat> <laughs> But Woody, you did set yourself up for that one. All right, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm just kidding. We love you, Woody. I'm just really glad you're here, Woody. Well, I'm glad to be here. All right, verse one. Now you you know this. You just don't maybe know you knew it. Know it. In the third year of the reign of, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What year is this? Six hundred five. Six hundred five B.C. Good. Good. We know that. You can chart that. I mean, there's lots of different sources, both from the Bible and extra-biblical sources, that tell us this is 605. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is another name for Babylon. Shinar is a plain. It's a plot. It's a flat desert plain in the southern Mesopotamian Valley. That's all it is. And it's just telling us that's geographical. We know exactly where that is. Now, I want you to notice the vessels of the house of God. What would they be? Just some of them. But what would be some of the vessels in the house of God? Bowls. The what? Bowls. The bowls for the incense. Candles. Candles, the menorah. The menorah. Right. The brightest children. Well, and that that comes in the next in the next verse, yes. yes. But you know, and, and now I thought I was almost positive somebody was going to ask, did that include the Ark of the Covenant? But nobody asked that, so I won't answer the question. Oh, and to be brought to the house of his God, and he brought he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And as I mentioned earlier, that would be Marduk. Marduk was the head. Of all the gods, about there were many, many gods in Babylon, but the chief god was Marduk. So that's where he would have brought him. So that's, and this, as I mentioned earlier, this is a very common practice in the ancient world. My god's greater than your god, so I'm going to take all the stuff associated with your god's worship into my god's worship house, the temple. So now all of the main things associated with Jewish worship in the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, were now in Babylon. It's just extraordinary. What that meant is that from 605 on, there will be no worship of Yahweh on Temple Mount because everything's in Babylon. Verse 3. Then he ordered Aspenaz. Now that is a name that you will never remember. But chief of the officials to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, the best and the brightest. That's why tradition says Daniel was one of the nobility, his family that is, was one of the nobility of Judah. Youths in whom no defect were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. 
and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Again, Chaldean is an ancient name for southern Mesopotamian people. What would be today southern Iraq and the country of Kuwait? You know, you understand what I'm saying? In the end of your note packet are a bunch of maps, and you can look at that if you're, if you're not familiar with that. So in summary, the practice of Nebuchadnezzar was to bring the best and brightest of every kingdom he conquered. So there must have been some way in which they did that, criteria they used. We don't know, but Daniel's one of them. Verse 5. So the curriculum is the literature and language of the people, of the Babylonian people. Verse 5, and the king appointed for them to, a daily ration from the king's ta- choice food. That could imply the food that the king ate that was part of the sacrificial system. All right, quick question. Would this food have been kosher? Do you understand what I mean by kosher? Kosher are the dietary requirements of the Jewish law. The answer is no, they wouldn't have been. There's no way they would have been kosher. It doesn't mean it isn't good food. It's just it wouldn't have met the kosher standards. In addition, from wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated for three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. All right, we learn a lot in verse 4 and verse 5. Well, we know that Daniel's one of these, and we'll see that in verse 7. But it's a curriculum that involves a lot of education in the history, in the literature, and the language of the kingdom. Also, eating in the court, eating the king's food, drinking the king's wine. Because the goal was fatten these kids up, get them into athletic training, get them ready to serve the king. How long did the curriculum last? For three years. So that's a significant commitment. Now, verse 7, Among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 7, And the commander of the officials, that's Asphanaz in verse 3, assigned new names to them. Daniel became Belteshazzar. Hananiah became Shadrach. Mishael became Meshach. And Azariah became Abednego. If you look at the beginning of each one of those names, it's a god of Babylon. B-E-L, Baal, is a god of Babylon. There are temples you can, well, they're in Iraq, so you wouldn't go there today. But you could go to Iraq and see the ruins of temples to Baal. Uh, Abednego is another god of the Babylonian pantheon. Why would they force them to change their names? Significance behind the name. Because of the meaning behind each one of the names? Take it another step further. Good. Strip them of all their identity. You are no longer a Jew. You are a Babylonian. And that that identity issue is really important. It was important in, in, in the ancient world. Your identity was usually framed around your name. Names were extremely important because they usually they said something about that person. And if you look in the Bible, you know how important names were. Names are still important to us today, but we choose them more because 
we go online and we look at the 75,000 available names and we choose one that really, really like his parents. The kid doesn't care, doesn't anything to do with it, but he's stuck for the rest of his life or life with it. It, it serves us. But in the ancient world, it wasn't necessarily the case. Names were extremely important, were part of your identity. So the Babylonians are altering their identity. You're no longer Jews. You're Babylonians. And so there'll be a, it won't be too many times, but there'll be a couple of times in the book of Daniel where you read about, we will read about Belteshazzar. Remember, that's Daniel. <laughs> that's Daniel's Babylonian name. All right. Okay, you, you, you with me? Any questions? I wrote some notes there in your packet to just expand on a little bit of this. What's the importance of three years? Say it again? What's, what's the importance of three years? I mean, it doesn't even seem to have enough. I mean, to... I, I, I can't. I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know why the curriculum lasted three years. Um, you know, in a way, though, David, that's, that's intense. I mean, it's, it's 24-7. You know, and it's it's not you know you have the summers off, you have weekends off. It's a very intense twenty four seven training program, and it really it, it's um, what's another way to put is to saturate these young boys. These are teenagers more than likely to saturate the hearts and minds of these kids with the Babylonian worldview. Now, and, and this is how I want you to think about it this way: you are unpacking your Jewish worldview and getting rid of it. And you're repackaging it around the Babylonian worldview. You're going to speak the language. You're going to know the history. You're going to know the music. You're going to eat the food. And you're going to have a name. You are a Babylonian. You're not a Jew. Why, why do our preachers and everyone use the Babylonian name instead of the Jewish name? Because in Sunday school class, that's how you learned it. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, I honestly, I it, part of it is because in Daniel chapter three, that's what they're called. Do you, you understand what I mean? When okay. these three boys are taken and will not bow down to this statue that Nebuchadnezzar erects, there. I, I would think we would stay with the Jewish name. Well, it's again. I think it's largely because in the story, in in the narrative of chapter three, they use the Babylonian names. Ninety-nine point nine nine percent of Christians don't know their Jewish names. But they should, at least, because you know Daniel's Jewish name. But that's, yeah, that's the, I think that's the only answer to that. I don't think there's anything nefarious in doing it that way. That's just the way it's usually taught. Now, verse 8. Verse 8, we're introduced, and this was one of those character trait phrases that several of you had identified one way or the other. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard. But Daniel made up his mind. Some of your translations might have, but Daniel resolved. Here is a man of conviction. I should say a teenager. He's a teenager of conviction. You usually don't word, use the word teenager and conviction in the same sentence. They don't fit. <laughs> you know, you, you don't get convictions until you're in your mid-20s. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, yeah, but I mean, it's, just, it's really saying something to us about this man. Man of resolve that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. All right, why does this verse use the word defile? Because it was non kosher. That's right. 
Eating non-kosher food will defile you according to the Levitical law. And so Daniel is saying, I don't care what you try to do to me. I'm still a Jew and I still will worship my God. So I will not eat of this food. So here again, as a man of conviction, he proposes something to Asphodel. Now that takes courage. That's, nobody put that up here. But that would be another important character. He's a man of courage. Because of his conviction, he has courage. And he, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials. Again, that's Asphodel mentioned there in verse 3. That he might not defile himself. Now just think, I mean, he is going to the top representative of the most powerful person on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this. Sorry for raising my voice. But I don't want to do this. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's just, I'm not going to do this. Verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials, of Asmanov. The text is telling us Daniel stood out. Asmanov noticed him. He noticed all of these things which you guys talked about here. He noticed that. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about it. doesn't tell us about how long, you know, the studies. It doesn't tell us anything. It just says, this man noticed Daniel. And God gave him favor and compassion. And the commander of the official said to Daniel, Look, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are of your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Now, do you, you understand the language he's using? If I allow you to not eat this kosher food, in three years you're going to lose weight, you're going to be pale, you're going to be walking with a cane. I'm making that up. But you're going to look haggard. These kids are eating the best food available in the world. And if you don't eat it, it's going to cost me my head. Because the king will notice it. Look, he's pale. The other kids are good. He's pale. He doesn't look healthy. What are you feeding him? Well, king, he didn't want to eat the stuff. How's that going to go with Nebuchadnezzar? So that's Asmanah, that's very reasonable. Then Daniel, notice this courage again. But Daniel said to the overseer, that's Asmanah, who had commander of the official appointed Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days. You understand what he's saying? Asmanah, please, let's just try this for 10 days. I won't eat the kosher food, not kosher food, excuse me. I, I won't drink of the wine. Give us some vegetables to eat and water to drink. So Daniel is going on a vegetarian diet. Now, huge books have been written justifying that the Bible teaches vegetarianism. It doesn't necessarily, and there's nothing wrong with choosing to just eat vegetables, nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. It's not an ethical issue in the Bible. But there are many, many, many other parts of the Bible which indicate, and including the kosher laws allowed you to eat meat. It just had to be done in such a way. 
and and so it all he's saying because there was no there was no rabbi there to bless. There was no rabbi there to oversee the preparation of the food. There was no rabbi there to blowtorch the oven, which is what you're supposed to do. Now, I'm serious. In today's age, if you buy, if you're a Jewish couple and you rent an apartment, and the apartment has a traditional stove, a rabbi has to come into your apartment and has to make everything kosher. And what he does, he takes a blowtorch to your oven. That's how it cleanses it of all the stuff that makes it unclean. Isn't that something? Well, there's nobody here to do that. So the only alternative they have is eat vegetables. There was no other alternative. They couldn't eat kosher food because there was no way they could get it prepared. So, you know, they didn't have, you know, gluten-free restaurants, kosher food restaurants. They didn't have that in Babylon. It was one item on the menu, and that's it. And so Daniel says, okay, we'll just eat the vegetables. Verse 13, then let your, our appearance be observed in your presence. And the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. What's, what's Daniel saying? Let us follow this for 10 days. And I'm telling you, you will see no difference. Man of faith. God, if we honor his law, God will take care of us. It's a man of faith, as well as courage. He seems to have just a, a very smooth way, and I mean in a good way, of blending his faith with his relationships with, well, in this case, with his God. Yeah, yeah. And and he and the uh, uh, the commander seems to respond very positively to that because he isn't saying. I'm not going to eat of it. Uh, he's not defiant. He's trying to work it out in, in a way that's respectful, it seems right. like to me, that that's right. maybe as Christians, we can do that with others that disagree with us mm-hmm. and still respect and love them. That's why I put that good interpersonal relationship skills. Yeah. He knew how to do that without offending. I mean, Daniel, very easy to say, like I was saying with, with some animation, I'm not going to eat that stuff. Forget it. Well, Asphodel would probably say, uh, look, if you don't eat this, you're going to lose your head. And I'll be the one to lop it off. That's not what he does. He he looked with favor and compassion because of what God was doing. And he knew just how to say it to Asphodel, respecting his office. I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you you shouldn't do it with the king. But please test it with me. Let's see if what you're really concerned about is going to happen. Now, verse 14 so he listened to them. This is Asphanas listening to Daniel. And this matter tested them for 10 days. Verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better. And they were fatter than all the ewes who had been eating the king's choice food. Now, again, leaving aside any issues of vegetarian, if you eat broccoli for 10 days versus someone who eats lots of meat and potatoes and all that stuff... Which one's going to put on weight? This guy's going to put on weight. But Daniel put on weight eating broccoli. (laughs) So who had something to do with that? God is honoring his faith. Again, I'm not not putting down vegetarian. It's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying, just common sense tells you that someone is eating a really high-fat diet, all that stuff that's in the kingdom, and just vegetables. You're not going to put a lot of weight eating vegetables. 
But the result is, so the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. So, I mean, just a lot of things coming together. This is a man, this is Daniel, a man of remarkable integrity, of conviction, of faith, of courage, and he would rather obey God than obey men. And so in another real sense, he's testing God. Are you going to remain faithful to me? But he has the determined faith. Yeah, I have a resolve. I'm a Jew, no matter what name they give me, and I will follow the kosher laws. Isn't Daniel's name judged by God? Yes, yes, exactly. It means that. That's exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. Approved by God, even, is, is the, the sense of that. All right, let's look at the final exam week. Okay, we're at the end of the three years. It's final exam time. Verse 17, and as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams That's an important piece of information for upcoming chapters. And at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, that takes you back to preaching verse, end of three years, the commander of the officials, Aspenaz, presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. It's final exam time. And the king talked with them. And out of them all, not one was found like Daniel and Nanaya, Mishael, and Azariah. They entered the king's personal service. The language of verse 18, excuse me, the language of verse 19 seems to be these four stood out among all the students. In graduation day, they were at the top of the class. I'm putting American spin on it, but that's, you know, I mean, they stood out. And so what it, it, it's telling us again, here's this man, Daniel, faithful, courageous, man of conviction, and God honored that, protected him, kept them, Amen. so that they would be used by God. And, and it's, just, it's, it's an incredible demonstration of God's sovereignty, but God's sovereignty and also his affirmation of faithfulness to him. And that's, of course, what's going on here. Good night, it's almost 25 already. All right, verse 20. Can you say that besides God on the side, they were the best of the best? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, they stood out. Mm-hmm. And it's not only who they are, but it's also God's faithfulness, those two coming together. Now, concluding. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm, excuse me. Um, now I should say something here to make sure you, because we're going to see this in the next chapter. Remember, this is a pagan kingdom. This is a godless kingdom. And so among the many things the advisors to the king were supposed to do was to tell him the future. I'm about to go into battle. Tell me, will I succeed? That would have been a tough question. So what did they do? You had diviners, you had astrologers. These are the people in the court. And so Daniel's among these people. Is Daniel going to consult the stars? No, he's going to consult God. 
So I, I just want you to understand when it uses words like the magicians and conjurers, Daniel is among those people. And by the way, the, the, the Hebrew word magician becomes magi, M-A-G-I, or in Greek, magoi. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. That's in Matthew chapter 2. These are the magi that come to visit Jerusalem. Where is he born king of the Jews? And if you ever do a real detailed investigation of who those magi are in Matthew 2, they are people from the east. And many, Edward Yamauchi has written a great book on this, but he, he makes it very clear that those magi from the east are people that had heard all the oral teaching of Daniel, and it was passed on from generation to generation to generation. Why did they know what to look for? Because Daniel had taught them that. And it was just passed on from generation to generation to generation. It's really, it's, the connections are really significant here. And Daniel, as you will see in a minute, well, it won't be in a minute, it'll be several weeks, but Daniel is going to be made, made head of all the Magi. He's going to become the chief of the court. And so if he's chief of the court, is he going to teach them? Because they always were looking for prophetic teachings. Is he going to teach them about the prophecies of Messiah? And it just it gives you the link of why did these guys know what to look for? You know, because Daniel is, you know, you saw the dates around 560. So why did they know 500 years later to know what to look for? Because Daniel had taught their predecessors, just kept passing on these oral traditions. This is what to look for. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want you to understand this is a pagan court. These are astrologers and diviners and they practice all kinds of necromancy and all that kind of stuff. And here's Daniel. He doesn't consult the stars. He consults God, which is why when he consults God, he always has the right answer for Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll see that in the next chapter. And then verse 21, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Daniel will serve in the court of Babylon and in the court of Persia for 70 years. That, if you put the years together, that's how long. Verse, verse 21 just tells us Daniel will be in a position of authority for 70 years. Daniel will never go back. If you go to Iran, which I know we can't do, but if you go to Iran, there is a huge, a huge building that's built over the traditional grave of Daniel. In Iran, they honor Daniel. Daniel's a prophet in Islam. They honor him. There's a huge building built over the grave of Daniel. He never came back to Jerusalem. He never came back to Judah. He died in Persia. But that, that's what God had told him. You were, that's what's going to happen to you. So Daniel is just an extraordinary figure. And chapter 1 introduces us to him and introduces us to these are his character traits. And that's important for us because he is about to be the vehicle we're transmitting tremendous knowledge, information, and prophetic timeline. You can trust Daniel. All right? Any questions about chapter 1? The historical material I tried to weave in, as well as what the text is telling us. Is uh, um, Persia and uh, Iran synonymous with one another? Mm -hmm. Why is one name used the other one? Well, Persia is the historic name. In the early 20th century, uh, when the Shah came 
and became the leader. He changed the title of the country, uh, changed his title, Shah of Iran, and that became the title of the country now. No longer called Persia, called Iran. And then, what's Nebuchadnezzar's role now? He's not the king. He is the king. He is the He's king. the king of the Babylonian Empire. Okay. And Babylonian Persia No, 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 no. If you go, if you go, you, you have your if you go to your packet at the end of uh, the packet are a bunch of maps. Ba- Babylonia, Babylonia is a Mesopotamian valley. What's today Iraq? Okay, Persia is to the east of Babylonia. And what happens in 539 BC is Persia, Cyrus is the king, Persia conquers Babylonia and then goes conquers everything over to Egypt. But that, that's, we're, that's not going to happen until chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. So no, but, but don't keep, keep those two separate. Babylonia is Mesopotamia. Persia is to the east. Okay? Is that the route? It looks like it was kind of a roundabout route on that map. Yes, because, Woody, it's, it's simple. Because if you're going to go from Babylon to Jerusalem, you're nuts if you go across the desert. I mean, it, that, that's deadly. That's a 500-mile-long desert. You'll take a 900-mile trip through lush, beautiful land with lots of water, lots to eat. So it'll take you longer, but, I mean, you're nuts if you go straight across. You will go this route, and that's exactly the route. And if, uh, I gave you another map here. These are the captivities. This is where the, the Babylonians take the Jews' captivity to Babylon, the Assyrians, that's earlier, so I've just shown you that. They resettled the Jews in different parts. And you'll notice they resettled a very large number of Jews over here in Persia. Which is why up, up until, up until um, 1989, 1990, 1991, the largest concentration of Jews in the Middle East outside of Israel was Iran. Because of the Assyrian Empire settling them there. Now, that's not true today. The, 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 the Jewish people have left Iran. There, there's hardly any Jews left in Iran because when the Ayatollah Khomeini took over Iran in 1989, uh, you know what? I mean, he was not a nice man <laughs> when it came to the Jews, and so they left in large numbers. Most of them went to Israel. That's way ahead of our story. Does that ex- explain? Verse 21. Yes. Until the first year of Cyprus, the king. Mm-hmm. What year would that be? It'd be 539 BC. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you go from you know roughly 605 until 539, and then he will serve into Darius's reign. So he will be in leadership almost 70 years. He dies, and we'll, we'll read about that at the very last end of the book. He will die in his 90s. Not exactly sure how old he was, but he would have been in his 90s when he dies. All right. Let's set you up for Chapter 2, which, remember, next week I'm in Pennsylvania. The week after that, we'll gather on the 8th of July, I think is that date. If you look at the little paragraph at the bottom of page 3, I want to read this, and I want to talk about Chapter 2, and I want to give you a brief assignment. In this section, now this is the prophetic history of the Gentiles. It will go all the way through chapter 7. The course of Gentile world history was declared and explained. This is a very important part of God's word 
in that it helps us understand the four great kingdoms of world history, with the fourth one having two stages. You'll see that. And history culminating in the triumph of the kingdom of God. That last phrase is really important. Where is history headed? To the triumph of the kingdom of God. History is not headed to the triumph of the United States of America or Russia or China or Iran or anybody else. It's the kingdom of God. World history, the Gentile domination of world history will end when Jesus returns. Amen. And so this, these chapters are written in Aramaic. They're not written in Hebrew, which was the language of the empire. It was the language of the Babylonian Empire, it was the language of the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire spoke Persian, but because almost everybody in their empire spoke Aramaic, in the language of the court is Aramaic, so that everybody could understand what the decrees were saying. So this is, this is really, really, really important. Now, um, would you, if you go to the next page, if you happen to have your notes with you, there, there's a lot of information on this chart. What you are going to, this is what I'd like you to do. As you read chapter 2 for two weeks, because we don't meet next week, two weeks from now we'll regather. Try to ignore everything on this side. Just keep your focus on that funny-looking statue, okay? And as you read through the chapter, because the chapter is about a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and he gathers all of his court officials together, the astrologers, the diviners, the necromancers, everybody else, and says, I want you to tell, the, tell me the dream I had, and then I want you to interpret the dream. So you, I mean, that's a, that is an amazing yeah. command. Yeah. I had a dream last night. I want you to tell me the dream, and then I want you to interpret the dream. Wow. And so the guys come back and said, no king has ever asked that. <laughs> Tell us, I mean, anybody can interpret a dream. You know, you have a dream, I can say, well, this is what I think that dream means. On what authority? I don't know, it just really sounds good. But if Daryl comes to me and said, I had a dream last night, I want you to tell me the dream I had, and I want you to interpret, I'd look at him and say, well, I can't do that. And that's what these guys say to the king. King, we can't do that. But there's one man in the kingdom who can. Amen. Daniel. What is your suggested reading? I, chapter 2. So, again, as you read the chapter, I want you to just have this, or as another, back at the end, there's another uh, simpler chart. You may want to use that, actually. Here's a simpler chart where it just has the statue, and again, ignore this. Okay? Now, there's one, one assignment. It speaks near the end of a stone from the mountain cut without hands. Cut with what? Cut without hands. A stone cut out of the mountain without human hands. Who is that? Christ. You're not supposed to answer that yet. (laughs) But, um, okay, I'll tell you what. As you, as you look at that, just, just coincidentally, read verse 45 and then read Daniel 7.13. Don't do it now. But I want you to connect. 
What is the title given to that stone in Daniel 7? Don't do it now. I don't want you to do it now. And the other part of your assignment is what does that stone cut without human hands do? Okay, now I'm, I'm asking you to do a lot because I'm assuming you're going to spend, this is going to take you a little while, to read the chapter carefully, look at the chart, try to get a sense of what this statue looked like. It's a long chapter. It's 45 verses. I'm hard-pressed to think we're going to get all of this done in January the 8th, uh, uh, July the 8th. But I want, again, uh, to introduce it, remember as you start reading, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He calls all his advisors together and say, I want you to tell me the dream I had. I want you to interpret it. Nobody can do that, so they call Daniel. And Daniel does it. And as Daniel, he tells the tells Nebuchadnezzar what he saw, this statue, and then he tells him, here is what it means. And he tries, and it's really, it shakes the king. And then it's really interesting, after this massive statue that he dreamed about, in chapter 3, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds a statue made out of gold. And what does he order? Everybody bows down to that statue. You think there's a connection between chapter 2 and chapter 3? You bet there is. So we'll do all that on January the 8th. What, what is our specific assignment? There? Who is the stone cut without human hands? Connect it with Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and tell me the title that that stone has. And then I want you to connect it with the New Testament. Who is that person? Don't do it now. And then the other thing is, what does he do? What does that stone do? What's the function of that stone in the, in the, in the dream? Um, thanks. Uh, before you pray, I, I would just have somebody I'd like you to mention, if you don't mind. Absolutely. A friend of mine, Jerry Kinney, uh, was diagnosed with prostate cancer and has moved out of prostate into his body. Mm. And he doesn't know what that's going to involve. He's going through, future, he's going through additional tests right now. Okay. In his 60s. Derek, was that? Jerry. Jerry. Kinney. Okay. Thank you. We will pray for him. Uh, yes, please. And to put my son in there too, also, Simon. Simon? Simon. All right, men, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for um, the opportunity to study, study your word, and study this uh, really magnificent book of Daniel. Thank you for the good uh, interaction uh, uh, among the men as they thought about the character traits of this extraordinary man, Daniel, uh, one of the remarkable people of Scripture. Uh, and we're thankful that we have the privilege of studying it. Uh, help us to have open minds and open hearts as we study what is going to become in chapters ahead much more complicated, much more difficult. And certainly chapter 2 starts that. As we see a dream, Daniel interprets the dream, and we try to get the framework that it really is putting together for us. Lord, more important than anything is that we, as we study these, um, these chapters and these books together, it's to transform us, it's to change us. And certainly, Lord, one of the deep convictions you want us to have as we study this book is you are a God who has everything in control. You're a God who's sovereignly carrying out your plans and your purposes. Daniel helps us to really see in a, in a big picture way what those purposes are. When I think of Woody's dear friend, uh, Jerry, I ask you to watch over him as he's now facing additional tests and as they evaluate these and try to determine 
how they're going to deal with this cancer that um, is invading his body. So we pray for that, give wisdom and discernment to the medical people as they make decisions. Lord, I, I do not know anything about this man. I don't know what his spiritual state is, but I would pray that you would use this in his life, as difficult as it is, if he does not know you, to come into a relationship with you, if he does know you, to find his trust and his confidence in you. Pray, too, for uh, our brother's son, Simon, if I uh, remember that correctly. And I don't know all his needs. I don't know what the specifics are, but I certainly lift him up to you as well. Now we'll be gone for a couple of weeks here and pray your watch care over all the men, and even those who are not here today. Ask your protection of them and in all they do and all they say, Lord. May they represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you in two weeks.